For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is an encore edition of Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, some wisdom about living in the moment from Buddhist scholar Robert Thurman. How Dungeons & Dragons changed the game industry almost 50 years ago and is experiencing a wave of resurgence during the pandemic. And film essayist Chris DeShiel looks at three movies about immigration that turn statistics into memorable stories. Those stories are all next here on Arizona Spotlight. summer of 2018, Tibetan Buddhist scholar and translator Robert Thurman spoke at the U of A's School of Social and Behavioral Sciences about how to have more fun in the present moment. Thurman, a Columbia University professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies, is well known for his translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. He talked with Laura Markowitz, an independent contributor to this show, about death, rebirth, and living in the now. People get so grim about Buddhism. What I really like to talk about is how to have more fun. And being enlightened is more fun. That's my main point. Robert Thurman has been thinking about enlightenment for a long time. At the age of 23, he lost the sight in one of his eyes during an accident. He headed to India looking for insight. And I've known the Dalai Lama since 1964, and he's a very close friend. And also a teacher, and also I admire him very much. In 1965, the Dalai Lama ordained Thurman as a Buddhist monk. Thurman was the first American to become a monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He learned the Tibetan and Sanskrit languages, and two years later he left the monkhood to marry a former fashion model. They had five children, one of whom is actress Uma Thurman. When I finished my Ph.D., my original teacher, the late Vinogizora, and his holiness Dalai Lama, ganged up on me, and they said, okay, you can teach in schools and do your thing, right, you're a professor, but don't just do that. You have to translate the whole canon into English. That's 4,000 books. And I said, oh, thanks a lot. And yeah, it's great. And then they said, oh, of course, you won't get it all done. You will, you will just get it started and create the institution, and then in a few generations it will be done. Then the Dalai Lama remembered that 30 years later, and when he met President of Colombia, he said, well, Lee, Lee Bollinger, that is, he said, well, Lee, you know, Professor Thurman needs at least three lifetimes to finish his project. <laughs> so then Bollinger, who's a very, very wonderful, intelligent man, well-spoken, he says, oh, that's really inspiring. That's great, Your Holiness. But, you know, the problem is we don't have that system here in Colombia. <laughs> I was too shy to say, you, what do you mean I can't reincarnate in my professorship? What is the problem? That's a lot of tenure for one guy. <laughs> exactly. Buddhists believe we're all reborn infinite times. We're completely submerged in infinity. You can't say that infinity doesn't permeate our finitude 
because otherwise it wouldn't be infinite. <laughs> right? Finitude and infinitude merge, actually, in a person. Buddhists believe that what follows us from lifetime to lifetime isn't a soul or a self, it's karma. That's the law of causation. If you do good, then you create future good, and if you do bad, you create future bad. In other words, what goes around comes around. According to Buddhists, you can be reborn infinitely into many forms, human, animal, insect, god, even space alien. Buddhists from ancient time didn't have a problem about life on other planets. Of course, there's billions, and, and they say we could die and be reborn in another human planet somewhere else, which might be more fun, you know, to have a tail and blue and live in a tree and in a hammock, you know, it could be really fun. According to Thurman, the belief in multiple lifetimes changes our relationship to the present moment, the now. Uh, yes, the question of the power of now, my dear friend Eckhart Tolle has done a lot of help to a lot of people about how it's very helpful to just sort of be more in the moment and not just be constantly ruminating about your things that your disappointments in your memory and your anticipations in the future and so on and to be more alert and alive and aware of what's going on and you might find more treasures in the moment than you know and i think that's really wonderful but the now for a person who is conditioned by our culture to think life is meaningless there's no future life you become nothing at death which means that essentially right now you're nothing. If everything gets too bad, you just blow your brains out and you become nothing. And therefore it's all meaningless and purposeless. That subliminal framework that is inculcated in them by our scientific materialist culture, the, the now is a little bit of a dead moment. So it's more of only a palliative. It's sort of getting away from your worries and your lamentations. And it does, it's not deep enough. So if you instead realize that what you find in the now is everything good, and that the now is the seed of your eternal future. The now includes everything beautiful that leads to a positive future. Thurman says the secret to having more fun and being happier is to become aware of the river of life and our infinite responsibility to help it flow in a more beautiful way for ourselves and for others. The now is the result of a wonderful effort by all generations past and yourself even, of course, in Buddhist point of view. So there's, then you suddenly are swimming in, the, in an ocean of an infinite currents of striving toward love and goodness and beauty and truth. And so your now becomes a moment of eternity rather than a dead zone of nothingness. And so th therefore I feel the real shift which gets you away from the recklessness at the heart of materialist culture, which is the false bravery of thinking, you know, instead of restraining some negative thing or turning off the carbon pollution or doing something, saying, what the hell, and it doesn't matter because you, it's all nothing anyway, finally, which leads to our reckless culture that is wrecking the planet. To the absolute core, you have enlightened self-interest that everything go, even if it's just a little better, a little better. Then your, your, your power of now that is intensified by the power of a living, breathing eternity. His meditation practice helps him to be awake in the present moment. Thurman also has a death practice. I do try to do the practice of thinking about death all the time. Talk about power of now. The biggest now moment of all is the moment of death. 
I think everyone should be much more mindful of their death, not live in denial of death, and not be frightened of it, also not necessarily be gloomed out about it. His most popular book is a translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's like an ancient dummy's guide to dying and rebirth. What would be a good death for you? Well, a good death for me would be if I could have a little more time before that and become more stable at the deep unconscious level of my mind so that I would be sure not to react with terror no matter what happened and to be fully open to everything, so confident that I could be, so that therefore I could be conscious in seeing where else I might like to go. You know, have a successful womb shot, go to a good mom in a good neighborhood and a family, and then there's lucid dying. You rise out of your ordinary body and you and you can control the situation a little bit. You can surf it. You can't dominate it, but you can maneuver, negotiate. And then the ultimate is lucid waking. That's what Buddha does. He's like a lucid living. You know, that would be really good. But, uh, but I, I haven't reached those things quite. But I have a sense where they are, and I feel inspired that I will get there maybe six lives. In this lifetime, Robert Thurman has a new book coming out this fall. It's about having more fun. He says if your pursuit of enlightenment is not making you happy, you're not going about it the right way. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. If you mention Dungeons and Dragons to most people, you'll find it either inspires a big grin of nostalgia or a blank stare. What seems like a nerdy pastime full of math and maps and dice to some is to others the key to a unique fantasy experience that's unlike books, films, or video games. Many of Dungeons & Dragons' current players weren't even born in 1974 when the idea of role-playing games first emerged. My guest, John Peterson, documented the story behind D&D's success in his book Playing at the World, a history of simulating wars, people, and fantastic adventures from chess to role-playing games. First of all, you have to appreciate that this was a time when Tolkien had just really, was at the crest of monumental popularity as an author. Uh, Tolkien's works had become available in inexpensive paperback editions for the first time in the mid-1960s. And once it became clear just how successful those were going to be, uh, publishers brought all sorts of new fantasy fiction, new swords and sorcery things. Uh, the, the old Conan yarns, which had originally been published in the 1930s, were brought back into print then as well. And so one of the things that Dungeons & Dragons did was it took a category of gaming that had been kind of a niche sort of game. This, this was called war gaming. This is mostly historical simulations that were played out um, on boards uh, that let you refight the Battle of Gettysburg, say, or the Battle of D-Day. It took the principles of simulating conflict from those war games and tried to apply them to the fantasy world. And in so doing, it also combined into this an idea of character, an idea that each player was going to have kind of a surrogate in the game. And this was, this was a very transformative breakthrough. Uh, they made this something about you and the personal progression of your character in the game. Who were the earliest players of Dungeons & Dragons? So the two fellows who created Dungeons & Dragons were Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. And Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson both came out of this wargaming community. They had both been hobbyists since the mid-1960s. Um, and what part of the country are we talking about? 
They're both Midwesterners. So uh, Dave Arneson grew up in St. Paul in the Twin Cities. Uh, Gary Gygax was based in the town of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is a resort town about two hours north of Chicago uh, that at the time was really just famous as being a place for well-heeled folks from Chicago to go in the summer in their nice summer homes kind of along the lake. But today, I think actually Lake Geneva, Wisconsin is famous mostly for being the birthplace of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Gary and Dave met at a convention called Gen Con. This is actually a very famous wargaming convention uh, that Gary Gygax founded in 1968. It was called the Lake Geneva War Games Convention, or the Geneva Convention for short, or for even shorter, it became Gen Con. <laughs> Gen Con still goes on today, though now we do it in Indianapolis, not in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. They first met there in 1969, and at that time, they were both already working on wargaming rules. The, the first set of wargaming rules they were interested in working on together was actually a set of naval rules for the Napoleonic era. So a pretty, pretty niche uh, dimension of this. But in 1971, Gary published a medieval fantasy war game called Chainmail. Chainmail popped a lot of monocles from the eyes of people in the wargaming community <laughs> who had really taken wargames as something very serious. We're, we're doing historical simulation. And what's this of bringing in dragons and orcs and ents and balrogs and all that and making that a part of wargames? People said it was childish. It was very controversial. But among younger wargamers, it was extremely compelling. And Dave Arneson was one of the first to kind of connect up with Chainmail and begin to adapt and expand it. And it was in his play in the Twin Cities that he came up with the idea that maybe rather than just having these forces be fighting out in the middle of a battlefield with a massive army, instead you could have small tactical groups that were exploring an underground space like a dungeon and would fight monsters there and get their loot and come back out. And it was when Dave showed that prototype to Gary that they, this was late in 1972, that they began collaborating on the Dungeons and Dragons roles. So what would you say were the key events, though, that turned this from a niche part of the gaming community into a really big business? Um, there's a certain irony in the story of how D&D went from being something that a few hobbyists, these people in the wargaming community or fans of fantasy fiction played largely in college campuses, to how this became a, a mainstream phenomenon. It's actually a famous story, but a story that is, is widely misunderstood. And it's the story of a kid named James Dallas Egbert. James Dallas Egbert disappeared from a university in Michigan in the summer of 1979. And his parents hired a private investigator to try to find out what had happened to their son. So that this guy came to the, the James Dallas Egbert's dorm room, uh, went through his possessions and found copies of Dungeons and Dragons. And he'd never heard of it before because virtually no one had outside of these very insular communities that were interested in these games. And so he started asking questions about the university, about how people played D&D. And he got a variety of information, some of which uh, seems plausible, some of which seems rather suspect, <laughs> uh, to, to my ears anyway. But he became fixated on the notion that James Dallas Egbert had begun to play a live-action version of D&D in the steam tunnels beneath the university because he had, uh, apparently the game had warped his mind and he believed it was real. And he was down in these steam tunnels and uh, he may be injured or just terribly confused and that he absolutely needed to be found. For various reasons, though, the university was reluctant to let Deere search the steam tunnels. And because of that, um, Deere, the private investigator, uh, he went to the media and just day after day, you know, propounded this theory that 
James Dallas Egbert was, had gone insane because of this game Dungeons and Dragons and was lost under the steam tunnels at the university. And this became front page news on the New York Times and the San Francisco Chronicle. This was, you know, on nightly television broadcasts. And this was the first place most people in the world heard of D&D. It was this cult game. Cult was used a lot in, in the headlines for this that would make you lose touch with reality. Now, it turned out this was entirely fatuous based on a completely misguided hunch. In fact, this kid had run away, was in Louisiana. Uh, a couple weeks later, he, he turned himself in, and his, the reasons for his disappearance had nothing to do with D&D whatsoever. But, you know, the media being what it is, um, that wasn't the story that ended up in the headlines, right? Um, the retractions didn't really get the same attention that uh, some of these earlier and more sensational claims had gotten. But as a consequence of this, this very nerdy niche game got something it couldn't have gotten any other way, this, this kind of dangerous reputation, this like rebellious cachet. And this caused more teenagers to buy D&D than anything else could, any amount of marketing money that TSR, the company that published D&D, could have mustered on their own. And so although it was based on this phenomenal misunderstanding, that's certainly what got it into the public eye and began the D&D fad when you would see D&D going from making, as it did in, say, 1978 to 79, a million dollars a year to, by 1983-84, million a year. Paint a little picture for us of how omnipresent Dungeons & Dragons was at the height of its success. There really was a fad for Dungeons & Dragons, again, that lasted, I'd say, from 79, from the time that it was front-page news in the New York Times, you know, up to really the release of Trivial Pursuit. If you look at what ended up displacing Dungeons and Dragons from the display stands at the at the front of Walden Books and B. Dalton companies that of course are, are no longer with us. Um, you know, it, it was games like Trivial Pursuit that kind of took it the, the place of it as a fad. But what and, about computers coming in and the idea that you could suddenly play a game without having to do so much math? There's no doubt that D&D requires a lot of number crunching, and it's actually very difficult to adjudicate combat fairly by D&D rules. And in fact, as you get into higher level characters, more powerful monsters, it's effectively impossible for humans to execute the system fairly. You always make some kinds of mistakes when, when you try to do D&D. And so certainly computer games provided a convenience that role-playing games really lacked. I mean, both in the sense that they um, did the system for you, but they also provided a they, they provided a substitute for a gaming group for those times when it wasn't convenient for you to get one. But of course, the flip side of that is that that's also what makes tabletop gaming so vital even today, is that it's really an opportunity for you and a small group of other people to, in, to invent and to believe in an adventure that's entirely you know, of your own creation. And it only has to please those five people that are sitting around that table. Nobody else has to think it's a good idea. Um, and that artisanal component to it, um, tabletop role-playing provides a real counterbalance to that that keeps it something that people want to do. That was John Peterson. His book is Playing at the World, a history of simulating wars, people, and fantastic adventures from chess to role-playing games. Chris DeShiel joins us next for a look at three recent films that, for him, turned headlines about immigration across our southern border into memorable stories. Chris DeShiel is an independent contributor to the show, and this commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. As the immigration issue seems to have been dominated by the most inflammatory and ill-informed among us, I think it's worth our while to examine the perspectives of some recent movies on the subject. Three films a drama and two documentaries, 
present three aspects of the immigration controversy. We are embarking on a 1,200-mile journey from El Paso to the Gulf of Mexico. To try and understand where exactly a wall would go and what effects it would have. I think there's people over on that bank. I talked to my parents about it. They said that was them 30 years ago. Any conversation on immigration has to begin with operational control of our border. The River and the Wall, directed by Ben Masters, was released in May of 2019. Masters is an author and conservationist from Texas, as the American president repeatedly promised to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, Masters decided to film a journey along the Rio Grande, which forms about 1,200 miles of that border, from El Paso to the Gulf of Mexico. Along with his film crew, he invited four experts to come along, fellow Texan conservationist Jay Kleberg, ornithologist Heather McKay, National Geographic TV host Philippe D'Andrade, and river guide Austin Alvarado. Alvarado's parents were Guatemalan refugees who came to this country illegally. He reflects on the courage and determination that it took for them to get here, how that has inspired him, and the love for the river that resulted in him deciding to be a river guide. The film documents the group's journey to the Gulf over two and a half months. They travel by mountain bike, on foot, on horseback, and eventually in canoes. We are shown an absolutely gorgeous country, much of it wilderness, teeming with wildlife. D'Andrade and McKay argue that a wall would badly disrupt the migration of animals and threaten their habitats. Along the way, the travelers meet ranchers and other landowners whose property is in danger of being taken away by the government under eminent domain in order to build the wall. A wall would also effectively cede hundreds of thousands of acres to Mexico, creating a no-man's land in between, besides wreaking havoc on local economies. File number 26449, Oscar Fernandez. Answer the question, but yes or no, Solo contesto la pregunta, sí o no, por favor. Is it true that you Oscar were born in Honduras? Sí. Why did you choose to enter the United States? Illegally? They told me that I had to join the gang or they would kill me. And did you join the gang? Icebox is a 2018 drama from HBO, written and directed by Daniel Saka. It follows a Honduran boy named Oscar, played by Anthony Gonzalez, who has been targeted by violent drug gangs that forced him to the ground and burned a gang tattoo onto his chest. Now he must join them or else. His family helps him to escape through a smuggler with the goal of reaching an uncle in Phoenix. The long journey to Mexico is perilous. And then the smuggler betrays his customers once they've crossed the border by giving them defective bicycles, then claiming they need to work for him for a while so that he can afford better ones. Oscar runs away instead and is eventually found exhausted in the desert by the border patrol. He gets thrown into an immigrant detention center in a building that is kept at ice-cold temperatures, thus the title, Icebox, with only an aluminum foil blanket to sleep under. The conditions for kids in these camps have become well-known due to the scandal of family separation under the Trump administration. In addition to the crowding and lack of sanitation, the authorities failed to give Oscar clear instructions on how to request asylum. It's the obvious intention of his jailers to send him back to Honduras. And on top of everything else, the other young inmates see his tattoo, and he becomes a hated pariah because they think he's an active, willing gang member. The director allows his child actors to be themselves, so the performances are natural, 
helping to create a film of moving realism. Icebox is a vivid portrait of the exhausting and terrifying ordeal of an undocumented immigrant child. These people, as much as they are invisible in life, they're invisible in death. It's very hard to identify them. Nobody's out there searching for them. The immigration controversy didn't start with Trump. A remarkable documentary from 2013 focuses on the people who don't make it, migrants who die while trying to cross the desert. Directed by Mark Silver, it's called Who is Dayani Cristal? In 2010, the dead body of a man was found in the Sonoran Desert, not too far from Tucson. It was among over 200 bodies found that year. There was no ID, but on the dead man was a tattoo with the words Dayani Cristal, From this starting point, the film seeks to find out who this man was and in the process illuminate the plight of migrants as well as the border policies that contribute to their deaths. We meet workers at the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner in Tucson. While they talk about their methods in tracing missing persons, we also hear frank opinions about the government's immigration policies. It was only after the Clinton and Bush administration sealed off the more urban routes of entry that the deaths in the desert skyrocketed. In the meantime, the popular Mexican actor Gael Garcia Bernal goes on his own journey, reenacting the typical route of a migrant from Central America, including traveling clandestinely on top of a train, which, despite being dangerous, is a common method of going north. These sequences dovetail with the discovery, after a lengthy and involved process, of the mystery man's identity, a Honduran named Johan Sandras Martinez. We see interviews with his wife and family, And it turns out he left for America in order to help with his family's medical bills. One of his kids had leukemia. Even those of us who are sympathetic to the plight of undocumented immigrants still generally think of them in the abstract. Here, we are confronted with a real person who died seeking a better life for his family. And the reality of the situation becomes immediate and vital. When the question, who is Dayani Cristal, was finally answered in the film, I couldn't stop crying. At one point, Johan's brother says that he's heard that billions of dollars are being spent on fences and walls, inert objects. Why can't they invest in human beings instead, he asks. This is the great question confronting us with the immigration issue. The River and the Wall, Icebox, and Who is Dayani Cristal are all available on DVD and streaming. They each help bring light in a time of social and political darkness. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.